0: Do not attempt to adjust your radio. You are now listening to Pop and Schlock Live with Jake and Meredith on KPFT.
1: Thank you for listening to KPFT HD3, and welcome to the debut episode of Pop and Schlock Live. Uh, I am one of your hosts. My name is Jay Goodson-Dodd. I am a local author and a teacher of English, and this is uh, a... <laughs> how do I even put this? Uh, first of all, For those of you not familiar we've been doing this for a while but this is the first time we've ever been live on the air so you're gonna have to forgive me if i flub a few things um i am more excited than i am nervous but we are really really happy to be here i'm sitting here with my uh lovely co-host uh meredith why don't you introduce yourself real quick sounded like there was a
0: question mark at the end of that there was a
1: question mark at the end of that who put a question mark at the teleprompter um (laughs) right uh so meredith is uh my co-host and she's the reason that we're here today i'm going to give her full credit for that uh but we are very very happy to be here um pop and schlock has been around for about three years in different incarnations on the internet as a podcast but now we are uh coming to you live over the airwaves and it's uh it's really exciting Uh, If you're a fan of the show, if you've followed us before, um, thank you for your support. Thank you for your continued support. Um, We've really enjoyed doing that, and we're trying to do something a little bit different with the show. But as always, our main... Uh, our main focus and our main driving force is to offer both critique and commentary on everything from pop culture to uh, the worst that uh, media and pop culture has ever had to offer. So we love current films. We love old films. We love TV, um, internet shorts, whatever. We just want to try to have our finger on that button, and we want to be able to offer in-depth, exciting commentary about those things in a way that maybe people aren't uh, used to hearing. Um, As far as our credentials, um, as I said, uh, I am a teacher of English and I am a published author. My latest book, Too Close to Kill, is now available on Amazon as a Kindle exclusive at least until the end of the month. Whenever the paperback comes out, um, I will be shilling that thing very, very hard over the coming weeks because I'm very, very proud of it. Um, My background, I studied uh, literature and creative writing at the University of Houston. Go Cougs! um, And I, even whenever I can't help myself, tend to pick things apart whenever I watch them. Whether it's a TV show, whether it's a movie, I tend to try to look a little bit beneath the surface. And that's really uh, where I'm coming from on this particular program. As far as Meredith is concerned, she can tell you a little bit about herself as well.
0: Hi, I'm Meredith Nudo. I am a writer and a comedian. I should probably uh, specify improv and sketch i don't do stand-up yet
1: so basically whenever she says comedian uh imagine air quotes around that because improv isn't real comedy she's shaking her head at me right now
0: the show that follows this is improv by the way
1: no no i have meticulous notes there's a google doc up on the uh up on the computer right here right now that proves otherwise i am well prepared i'm a professional
0: anyway so i like i said i'm a writer i am a comedian and a social media manager Uh, I come from a sketch comedy background. I've also taken several screenwriting classes. Uh, I've taken comic book writing classes. I've written comics, short comics. Uh, And like Jake, I'm mostly interested in the storytelling element and breaking things down. I have a master's degree in literature from the University of St. Thomas, where I uh, basically was rewarded for breaking everything down into its component parts, reassembling them, and then trying to get validation.
1: That is the best description of a master's degree in literature that I've ever heard. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Uh, And so um, this show is one where we're going to try to, on a week-by-week basis, look at... Elements of pop culture, things that are in current release, things that have just hit home video, uh, things that everybody is talking about. Uh, we want to talk about them in a way that is interesting and exciting and at the same time uh, allows us an av- an avenue for our uh, creative mockery, if I can put it that way. Um, but we are not here to, uh, if we see a bad film, to spend uh, an hour of your time just saying, oh, this movie was terrible. <laughs> like, that's not what we do. Um, well, like- we
0: do. We just don't do it on the air.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's what the uh, that's what our prep time is for. Um, we want to offer legitimate critical analysis and commentary, and hopefully get get to an agreement on film, whatever that uh, maybe we hadn't thought about before. We actually want to have a decent discussion. Now, this week on our debut episode, and thank you for joining us here today. Um, we want to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of what came out in 2017. Now. Um, Most of us probably feel that 2017 was a little bit of a letdown as far as the overall year was concerned. Um, The joke that I consistently make is that 2017 was just... A stale moldy sandwich that we were forced to eat and endure because it was the only sustenance that we were given. Um, I have argued that the only good things that happened in 2017 were the Astros World Series win, a Star Wars movie, and my wedding. That's the only three things that I enjoyed about last year. Um, I will say that this year is already off to a much better start, at least for us, because we're sitting here on the air in a new avenue and we're very excited about that, and I started off the year with a book launch. So um, we're we're, all, we're already in a good place where we've got our minds right. We can look back on 2017 and uh, it won't make our soul cry tears of blood. Um, so... I wanted to start... Um, well,
0: actually, we should start by thanking Don Freeman. Oh, thank you, Don, Don Freeman.
1: If uh, I'm, I'm sure Don's listening somewhere right now. Uh, yes, very big thanks to Don Freeman for giving us the opportunity to uh, bring this show to the masses. Um, thank you so much for the platform. Um, we promise we won't let you down, at least not on our first episode, anyway. Um, wait till we get to that mid-series slump um, that totally does not exist. Um, anyway... I would like to start the show by talking about things that maybe were uh, positive about 2017, however few of those there may have been. Um, I spent a little bit of time looking over what, uh, what came out in 2017. I was looking over the films that I had seen, the films that I enjoyed, and surprisingly at the end of the year, I found more that I enjoyed that came to theaters than things that I did not, which... Um, in hindsight, I was sitting there thinking that, that was that's kind of rare. Because most of the time, there's uh, I, I feel like I'm th- just awash in a deluge of terrible films just week after week. But I guess maybe it wasn't so much that there weren't terrible films in wide release as much as there were uh, plenty of terrible films that I just managed to avoid.
0: See, and 2017 was, uh, to put it very nicely, uh, a difficult year for uh, me and so i was i was pretty um selective about what movies i would and would not see because i didn't really want to waste money i didn't want to waste time i was going to see something that i knew i would like so my list of disappointments is actually pretty small and all of them were ones that i sincerely wanted to like
1: except for the uh except for the movie that we did our pilot episode the one that got us on the air
0: i sincerely wanted to like bright i just didn't
1: I, I, guess I'll, I guess I'll agree with you on that one. Um, it was a strong concept in Poor Execution. Yeah, good, good concept. Um, poor Execution is putting it lightly. Um, that film was a walking dumpster fire from the word go. Um, but as far as things that I liked, um, honestly, 2017 was bookended by two of my favorite movies. Um, I started the year, I think the first film that I saw in theaters in 2017 was uh, John Wick Chapter 2 which I absolutely loved. And I don't mean that in a, like, oh, this movie is so awesome kind of way. Like, admittedly, the gunfight choreography and the action choreography in that film was astounding. And if you haven't seen it, um, I sincerely would advise everybody to, if you're interested, watch part one and two back to back because it's... It feels more coherent that way. But one of the things that I really loved about John Wick 2 is something that most sequels do not do. And that is they took... A massive leap forward in terms of world-building and Giving us something that felt lived in and truly developed It wasn't just a cash-in sequel They put a lot of time and effort into building this world and making it something that uh, You could tell they spent a whole lot of time figuring out how the little cogs and pieces came together and I feel like that being my introduction to film in 2017 it set a very very high bar and then uh, the last movie that I saw in 2017, because I saw it multiple times, was of course uh, *The Last Jedi*, which I have now seen a grand total of four times, and I hear porgs in my sleep.
0: He's not mentioning that he's got a porg, a little, little Garfield suction cup. Okay, his car. yeah.
1: So uh, I went to I went to Think Geek. Uh, The night of the premiere, and I was just trying to kill time, so I walked in the store thinking, hey, they've got some good stuff, I wonder what they have, huh? And they had a stuffed porg with suction cups on the wing that you can stick to your Window in your car. It's called Porgon Board, and it comes with a little Porgon Board yellow sticker, which I love. Like, this is the kind of thing that brings immense joy to my cold, dark heart. These are the things that make me get through the day. What makes me happy? Porgon Board. That's what makes me happy. So,
0: speaking of bringing joy to a cold, dead heart, uh, my one of my favorite movies of 2017 was Keddie
1: that's the that's the Turkish cat movie right
0: Turkish cat documentary it is one of the most uh, FCC violating word delightful movies I have ever seen it is so joyful it's so full of life it's so the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous beautiful views of Istanbul uh, and the stories of the people with their cats Uh, there was a sailor that had rescued some kittens that kind of became his eyes and ears on the sea there was uh, there was uh, a cat that lives outside of a restaurant who I probably eats better than a lot of people because he's so spoiled. And it was just a wonderful, sweet-natured, good-natured movie Uh, and, you know, all-ages movie. And I saw it at River Oaks with a couple of friends late at night. We were the only people in the theater.
1: I'm gonna continue to do this I'm sorry. You left yourself open. No, it's one. okay.
0: It's okay. It was my fault. I'm going to victim blame.
1: Everything is your fault. It is. I thought we were going to have a much more cordial uh, co-host relationship this year, but uh, for fans of the show who have been following us since its inception, uh, you know that this is always going to be one of those friendly, contentious relationships where uh, if I can get a dig in, I am going to. And, I think
0: we're too close
1: to be nice. Yeah, I think that that's true. And also, like... You just make it too easy like i'm sitting here talking about what my uh my favorite films are and i admittedly i'm a stereotype but at least i'm not like <laughs> my favorite film is something that was referenced on npr but not the npr you listen to the underground npr that you can only get through the pirate stream by attaching your by attaching your macbook to some sort of cell tower that you built yourself out of crowd-sourced wheat thins like that's that's meredith's favorite movie of the year which is appropriate
0: I can't even be mad at that
1: yeah you can't like you can't get mad at the accuracy it's like of course if if you know me of course i'm gonna say that my favorite movie of the year was probably like the last jedi because i uh as a as a writer and as a storyteller most of what i understand about storytelling came from whenever i was six seven years old watching the original star wars movies like i like i was enthralled with the idea of the hero's journey before i knew what the hero's journey was and that led me to all of the sort of things that i love about storytelling about science fiction and about um narrative progression like it was star wars that got me into like arthurian myth and things of that nature so um like you can make fun of me all you want but i loved star wars and uh, there are legitimate criticisms to be levied at The Last Jedi, and if I have a chance to do an episode completely dedicated to that, believe me, I will. Um, but I greatly enjoyed that film, and I think that um, it makes me happy that I that I could at least bookend 2017 with things that I liked, rather than um, just diving headfirst into a gelatinous cesspool of terrible films. Because as far as terrible films are concerned, um, really, It it was basically uh, a a holy trinity of horrible that I'm able to uh, point to and things that I did not like. Um, Of course, there was Bright, the Will Smith Netflix film. um, And I'm using the term film lightly because um, it's a rough assemblage of uh, scenes composed with actors. But beyond that, I don't even know if you can call it a functional film. Um, And then... I don't ask me why was forced to endure parts of the emoji movie which is just as bad as you would imagine it is I, it, I, I I am NOT that kind of masochist okay like I will subject myself to terrible films if I think that there's something to be gained from it if I think that there's something that I can hope to understand about why we're put on this earth like I learned so much about humanity by watching Plan 9 from Outer Space. Like, I learned something that day. Whenever I watched the Emoji movie, I learned nothing except where my threshold is for what I can endure. And the other, the last thing that I will say that I did not enjoy and it really pained me was uh, Guy Ritchie's King Arthur movie. Ooh. Which, if you Ooh. did not see it, it was atrocious and it's not that one it's one of those films where and everybody has differing opinions on what makes a good film what makes a bad film and even me and meredith disagree with that like a hundred times over whenever you look back at our back catalog of what we've discussed Um, sometimes we will the reason that meredith likes something is the reason that i dislike something but whenever you look at a film like uh king arthur legend of the sword unnecessary subtitle The reason that film did not work is because there was a fundamental misunderstanding of what makes that legend enduring. And I am a massive, massive fan of the King Arthur canon. Like, uh, as an English teacher, I love teaching. King Arthur. Like, I love uh, Sir Thomas Mallory's de d'Arthur. I love uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, My favorite is... My favorite King Arthur is Monty Python and the Holy Grail, because... uh, Because, duh. Because, duh. Um, I was fortunate enough to see Spamalot live at one point. I I, I saw
0: it uh, when John Cleese was the voice of God.
1: Oh, that was a good one.
0: I saw it in the West End.
1: And I, I love that section of myth. And... It was just a, miscalcul- it was a, mil- a miscalculation in so many different ways. The tone was all over the place. And I feel like there is a place for bombast and there is a place for going in that direction, but I feel like it's also depressing in a certain way that we haven't gotten a good King Arthur film since John Borman's Excalibur. Like, we should have at least one good King Arthur movie in us. Like, is there a director out there that can do it? And it seems like... Terry Jones? Well, I I feel like he's busy at the moment, probably writing his 87th Master's thesis. Um, Which, I feel like it's the same issue that we see with characters like Robin Hood. Um, Like that that completely misguided Ridley Scott thing from a few years ago with Russell Crowe.
0: Well, I feel like what they try to do is reinvent the wheel.
1: Yeah, by doing that, I feel, and I feel, uh, we were in this weird spot a few years ago where, uh, whenever you looked at like medieval fantasy and folklore, it had to be grounded, can't not be real. That's why we got that the Clive Owen King Arthur mm-hmm. with Kira with Kira Knightley, uh, and we got uh, the the one with Russell Crowe. It's like they had. To, oh, it's so gritty. I I watched The Dark Knight once, and now everything has to be yeah, gritty. But the
0: thing is. Gritty has its place, but it doesn't always work totally for everything.
1: And I feel like that's a big thing, is that a lot of people making films nowadays don't understand tone. The best films of the year, the ones that I absolutely loved, were the ones that really, really understood tone. And I think there I, I was looking over your list, and I was looking over my list, and I think there were two that overlapped. One of them was Logan. Yes. Logan was amazing. And in the grand scheme of all of the X films, it is at the very, very tip top because of its understanding of tone. And knowing that, I mean, we're in a post-Deadpool world now where R-rated films in a superhero genre are acceptable right? And everyone, and it seems like it's like, let, everyone's out there like starting their petition. It's like, I want to hear Captain America drop an F-bomb. And that's not where we need to be. What we need to look at is characters who, the stories that they populate need a certain level, a certain tone, a certain type of tone. And the
0: gritty tone worked for Logan. It really, the really The story did. Of, a, of a superhero who's well past his prime that's on his way out, that's, that's watching a he watched all of his friends die. Oh, spoilers. Uh, he watched all of his friends die. He's taking care of a senile old uh, Professor X. That that tone works.
1: And I feel like part of it comes down to the real human drama of it. Um, if you look at films like The Avengers and the mainline X-Men films, there are narrative stakes involved with uh, that particular uh, with those particular films that drive the story. And they resonate, but they don't resonate the way that if you look at something like Logan, the interpersonal connection that Logan and Charles Xavier had, that was the driving force of the film. It was the idea of that responsibility that Logan felt for Charles. And it was and then later on for X23. Yeah, and for Laura, like, it was that interpersonal connection that really sold that movie. Now, was it awesome to see. Uh, huge jacked man slice people's arms off with his metal claws of course it was that i mean that's a driving force of the character we've
0: been waiting for that since he was announced as wolverine
1: i know but at the same time what really made that film work was the fact that they adhered to a tone that was appropriate and they used that to drive the storytelling decisions. And I really, really liked that movie. What um, was maybe not so fun was I sat in the movie theater with my wife watching this. And for those of you who have listened to the show previously, you know Tori. Hi, Tori. I know you're listening. Um, Tori is not as well-read in the world of film as uh, my little circle of running buddies of friends. Uh, So she had never seen an X-Men film prior to seeing Logan. She came with me because she wanted to come with me to see the film. And the whole time, she's leaning over, she leans over, and she's like, When does he turn into the big metal wolf? Her basic understanding of Wolverine was... Completely off the charts. It's like the first time I made her watch Batman and she assumed that he had bat powers, because the only super <laughs> the only super uh, human that she knew of was Spider-Man.
0: I want a Tory-led Wolverine movie now.
1: See... Uh, that needs to happen. See, you're not... It's not a hard sell. I would rather have her writing Wolverine for Marvel than just about anybody else on the planet, because she... Like, I'm one of those people... I love comic books. Uh, I spent way too much time and money throughout my, uh, my years reading comic books. Um, and I'm one of those people who... Um, I love the history, the rich tapestry of continuity. Ugh. Like, I love that. <laughs> but at the same time, um, I would love to see someone like my wife come in and go, well, Wolverine could turn into a giant metal wolf now because it'd be cool. Like, that's what I'd like to see.
0: Make it work. And speaking of rule of cool totally completely opposite of, of Logan uh, Ragnarok. Oh, Thor I... Ragnarok is now my favorite Marvel movie. Because I think that that campy 80s Flash Gordon tone works for him and it works now, better for
1: Chris Hemsworth's comedic sensibilities. Oh god, you are so completely right and it's I feel like that's the thing that was off about the previous two Thor movies was they never quite nailed the tone. Um,
0: Thor needs to look like he should be airbrushed on the side of a van. He is—he's beer. He's shag carpeting. He, hes not Shakespearean. Loki is Shakespearean. Heimdall is Shakespearean, but the, but Thor is not. The way that
1: the way that I that I put it is, Thor should be a community theater improv man who stumbled into a Shakespearean play. Thor's a bro. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thor's a bro, and they uh, take it with Titi genius took it and ran with it, and it was, like I said, it became my favorite Marvel movie. And the thing is, like,
1: Taika as a director is amazing. Like, oh, I love yeah. his work, and I, I can't wait for the uh, What We Do in the Shadows spinoff. I'm so looking forward to It's going to be that. great. It's going to be great. Um, and that film, as far as tone, it was completely different than everything that came before, and that's why it worked. They looked at a character that had been successful almost in spite of himself, and they figured, oh, okay this is what we're going to do now. And it worked gangbusters. Um, it's one of those ones that I cannot wait until it comes out uh, on home video in a few weeks so that I can watch it again because I really, really enjoyed that. And it seemed like the more that Marvel takes risks, the more that uh, I enjoy what they're doing.
0: Um, well, Guardians of the Galaxy was a risk. And that was that ended up being my favorite of the Marvel movies until Ragnarok came out.
1: And it's funny that you mentioned Guardians because... Uh, I really did enjoy Guardians Volume 2. Um, It didn't make my top list uh, just because I didn't think it was quite as strong as the first one upon multiple watches. Uh, But it's funny because I ended up... I just needed something to watch uh, over the Christmas break and... uh, it was happened to be on netflix so i'm like oh that'll be fun to watch and i forgot how emotionally resonant that film was mm-hmm. to the point where whenever you get to that fi- the basically the finale and their the funeral in space and i'm just sitting there laying in bed i'm like i've got a bowl of popcorn on my lap and i'm crying and i'm like i miss my dad like that's uh it, it was kind of it was unexpected in how resonant that film really was and i think that it does work better on rewatch because whenever i first saw it i was kind of disappointed that it wasn't more like the first one and that was just me having my blinders on um and i think that maybe if i revisit it uh in a, in a few months time whenever i look at some of the other things that marvel has done maybe i'll have a different opinion too it's one of those films that kind of evolves every time i see it But I really did, I really, and as far as tone is concerned, a film has to have, in my personal opinion, and this is kind of my driving thesis for what I understand film in terms of what works and what doesn't work, which is really the point of this podcast in its entirety. What really drives a film is its understanding of what it wants to be and what it is seeking to accomplish. And Thor knew exactly what it wanted to do. Uh, mm-hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two knew exactly what it wanted to do. Films that don't work are things like the Emoji Movie. That film had no reason to exist. It had multiple. It was like it was created in a mad scientist's lab, trying to make the perfect four-quadrant uh, money-generating scheme movie. Like that's what it was, and it was it was so undercooked and so underthought that it just didn't work for me on any level whatsoever. And then there's also films like King Arthur, like did it want to be high fantasy? Did it want to be a grounded street level oh a cheeky guy Ritchie movie? What did it want to be? It didn't know. Films that understand their own tone and their own narrative drive, those are the ones that work. And as far as as far as like my favorite film of the year, it fluctuates a lot, but in my top 3, we have to talk about Stephen King's It which I am a obsessive Stephen King fan. I have worshipped at the altar of Stephen King as a writer for many, many, many years. Um, as far as influences on me personally, I can't think of someone who had a bigger influence on me as a writer. In my bag right now, I have two books. One of them is a collection of short stories that I'm rereading, and the other is uh, Stephen King's On Writing. Excellent
0: book, by the way. Highly recommended. Yeah, if, you,
1: if you have any interest in writing craft or developing your skills as a writer or communicator, read Stephen King's On Writing. It he is me how
0: to kill ad- adverbs.
1: Yes, he is. He knows what he's doing, and I like I like the way that he presents those those bits of information. But the reason why um, I loved Stephen King's it the adaptation that came out this year is because it so understood the tone of that book. And it's funny because in my heart of hearts, whenever I was following the development of that film, which was troubled beyond belief, if you read the story of how that film eventually made it to the screen, the I was wor- I was worried. I was legitimately worried that if we looked at what they were doing, that maybe they were misinterpreting the point. Um, because if you've not read Stephen King's It, and I don't blame those who haven't, because it's over a thousand pages long, and it can be used as a murder weapon in a last-ditch effort. No, oh, I just haven't read it because I'm uncultured swine. That too. But if you haven't read it, the general theme of the story is the idea of that the loss of innocence that the baby boomer generation had transitioning into like the late '70s, early '80s. That idea of just creeping into this, like, well, the American dream is dead, and everything that we thought was pure and I- and happy and innocent wasn't so anyway. Nah. And so that transition and moving up the timeline so that the children were facing the facing it in the 1980s, meaning that uh, spoiler alert whenever they do the second half with the adults, it will bring it to modern day. how would they adjust the theme, how would they adjust what they were trying to say, how would they adjust the message and ultimately what i realized was you didn't have to alter that message at all it's just a completely different loss of value because if you look at those of us who were born in the 80s or lived in the 80s and grew up in that time period um if you look at how we are now and you trace our and you trace what makes us afraid and what we truly fear that film captured it so 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 well and what it also captured that i loved and so so very few films that i've seen have been able to do this is the legitimacy and the warmth of childhood friendship um, it reminded me so much of what it was like for me growing up in the suburbs in the late late 80s early 90s it reminded me of that so much and it wasn't just like the movies playing in the background or the color palette or the fact that like You know, I I too remember like dropping Legos when I got scared like it was like I remember it was very visceral But at the same time it just there, it was a I almost can't put it into words how it transcended it didn't feel like a movie to me It felt very very real and I feel like it comes down to they understood tone they understood that you had to identify with these characters in a certain way, and the actors in that film were so, so very good.
0: Well, and some of the, th- the themes that it touches on are near universal: grief, yeah, loss. Both of those things. Uh, I mean, it's those are probably some of the only two experiences that that hit every time period and every culture. And it's we all know grief, and we all know loss.
1: And it's funny because. Much much ado has been made about the changes that had to be done from the book to the film adaptation, and rightfully so, because uh, the environment that Stephen King wrote it in back in the 1980s is completely different than the landscape that we're looking at right now. But that lens also aided in making that ad- that adaptation work, because the interpersonal relationships between those group of kids and particularly the interpersonal relationships between um bill ben and beverly um i feel like uh stephen king was going through uh his uh his stan lee book of all right everyone's gonna have the same consonant but I feel like that interpersonal relationship the way that we view the innocence of childhood maybe it's because we grew up in a certain time where um, you know a lot of us if if you were born in the 80s or if you grew up in the 90s um, we're that that generation that grew up where we had access to a free flow of information that maybe was it was something you had to seek out in earlier generations from you know if you lived through the 60s and 70s if you wanted to seek out something that was truly taboo or disturbing you had you had to find it yourself whereas I remember accidentally stumbling onto things that just broke me during the early 90s just because the
0: internet exists oh well see for me it was the the lower anime shelf at Blockbuster
1: Ugh, anime like I've seen things. I've seen some stuff, man, and some things. Anyway, um, if you're uh, if you're just tuning in right now, thank you for listening to KPFT, uh, Houston Public Radio. This is Pop and Schlock. This is our debut episode, and we are running down the good, the bad, and the ugly of 2017 pop culture. And uh, we've been talking about what I consider to be my... The film that resonated the most with me was Stephen King's It. And... I love that film largely because it hit every base that I wanted it to in terms of if I want a film to be good, it has to have a consistent tone, and I feel like that film really did. It towed the line between... um, One of the things that I love about horror is that after the fact, you kind of laugh about it. it. Like, if you've ever been to a really good haunted house, after you're finished screaming your brains out after being chased by a leper with a chainsaw you find yourself in the parking lot laughing with your friends.
0: Uh, You know, yes, but also I didn't laugh after Get Out. Also an excellent movie of 2017.
1: Get Out is one of those films that I hate every time I hear it listed as a comedy.
0: It's really not. Because it is really not.
1: Extremely diminishing to refer to it as a comedy. that, That film was unsettling. And one of the best written pieces of media this year. And I don't feel that, um, as your typical uh, early 30s white guy, I am qualified to speak on why that film is so important and why it's so well done. Um, I feel like you're I,
0: better off reading commentary. Yeah, from I, other
1: critics. I, I basically just want to like screenshot a bunch of our friend Isaiah's Facebook posts and just put those out into the ether instead. I'll leave it as saying that that film is important. It is wonderful, and over the next couple of years, it is going to be viewed as a major turning point in the conversation as it is related to... I
0: don't think it's going to be within the next few years. I think it's already started.
1: My my argument with that, and the reason why I say over the next few years as opposed to immediately, is because there are going to be people who seek to diminish the impact of that film. All other people who are saying, oh, it was such a great comedy. No, that movie was a pure horror show, and it was excellent in pretty much every regard. Um, And over the next couple of years, people are going to see that as the major turning point as far as looking at the legitimacy of uh, black voices in film. Jordan Peele is one of those guys who is going to make an indelible mark on the world of film. And I I cannot wait to see what he does next. I really, really cannot.
0: He's doing a Twilight Zone reboot, I believe.
1: That's what I've heard. And i I've always had a passing familiarity with uh the Twilight Zone I've never been a massive super fan, but oh, i, I love am it. i'm really excited to see that reboot oh um, I am a
0: sucker for uh sci fi anthologies
1: well, I mean I love anthologies anthologies are great uh and I feel like um oh, that was me um I feel like we don't get enough in the way of anthology anymore. I feel like people are moving away from it. I think
0: we're starting to move closer to it, actually, Mm -hmm. because we've got Black Mirror, Mm -hmm. we've got Dimension 404, uh, we've got Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams starting on Amazon. I'm looking forward to that. I think, I I want to, don't quote me on this, I think Altered Carbon on Netflix is going to be an anthology. There's also going to be the, um, the, uh... Amazing stories reboot that Brian oh, yeah. Fuller is going to be doing. That's also an anthology.
1: And Brian Fuller also, as of today, uh, was announced to come on board to help uh, run the TV adaptation of the Vampire, Di- or not the Vampire Diaries. Uh,
0: Interview with a Vampire. Interview with a Vampire. I know. Way to way f- to
1: to suddenly get me interested. I know. Like I, I'm 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 saddened that he's leaving American Gods because I I love that show. Also, a best of 2017. But. At the same time, he's jumping onto things that are so exciting that I can't really be mad because I'm too busy being excited. And on the topic of anthologies, even we're, uh, some people are working it into the world of film. We're getting another Cloverfield movie this year.
0: And that was on my list of things that I'm excited for in 2018. Uh, know, God Particle.
1: I know nothing about that film. It's a mystery wrapped inside an enigma, but I know I'm going to see it because I unabashedly love 10 Cloverfields. Oh, it was excellent. We we did an episode on it. It was an excellent piece of film. Um, The last 10 or 15 minutes of it are bonkers and do not fit with the rest of the Mm -mm. film. It is... If, if you go back and you watch that movie and then you ask, Hey, Jake, why did you like 10 Cloverfield Lane? You talk so much about how you love consistent tone, and that film really doesn't. Well, sometimes I'm a liar, okay? And that film was amazing, and I stand by it.
0: It's important to be self-aware, Jake. I'm so proud.
1: So, um, i trying to think. There were some things that I really enjoyed this year that... It's kind of hard for me to even keep track of the ones that I really loved. And... It wasn't until the discussion got brought up again around the Golden Globes about how much I truly and honestly enjoyed Wonder Woman. And it's one of those things... Except thing- a- another one that didn't like the ending. I feel like that's... Uh, we're just going to call that the DC Cinematic Universe ending. Or yeah. uh, or pixel explosions galore.
0: Yeah, didn't um, like the ending. But everything up to that point was glorious.
1: Yeah, and I feel like maybe they will learn from that experience when they go to sequel. Because um, if you look at the Captain America films for Marvel, uh, the ending of First Avenger wasn't exactly amazing. It was kind of contrived and cliche even at the time. But by the time they made it to Winter Soldier and they made it to Civil War, there was enough working that you could say, oh, okay, uh, they learned from their mistakes, they evolved, they did something different.
0: Well, Marvel different. was able to take risks by that point, too. Yeah, we yeah. we kind of tend to look back on it with, with contemporary eyes, obviously. But at the time, it was going to be a big risk to do anything super...
1: Well, I remember at the time of Captain America First Avenger coming out, the worry was that it's like, oh, do we really need a raw, raw, patriotic American film right now? Because like, the backlash against... Everything throughout the time of the War on Terror had kind of soured us on the idea of, yay, America! Well,
0: oh, I mean, as long as we weren't going to do the Mark Millar, does this, do you think this A on my head stands for France? I think we're going to be okay.
1: Yeah, massively misguided. Um, but Marvel has evolved to the point where they can take risks. And, um... We're Looking at what could be great in 2018 and beyond, I'm really looking forward to Black Panther. Oh yeah! I'm really looking forward to... They announced today uh, that we are moving forward with a Black Widow solo film that's finally going into the pipeline. Right. And one of the things that I'm not seeing brought up in these discussions about these films is they are, of course, allowed to take risks now because they went through the process they went through the idea of okay we're gonna take small calculated crowd-pleasing risks to get to a point where we can make black panther and it's going to be anticipated because had they fired off that shot even five years ago it wouldn't have had the resonance that it will this year, because it has been anticipated.
0: Hasn't it sold out to the point that Lupita Nyong'o can't even get a ticket? Yeah,
1: apparently even even people who worked Amazing. on the film cannot get an opening night ticket. It has been that crazy. And it's a double-edged sword, because of course we want to see more representation of uh, lesser-known characters, of characters of differing backgrounds we want to see diverse characters on screen that is of course the truth but at the same time we had to build to this and the reason why it's going to be so good is because they took the time to build up to that point so it's and honestly isn't it going to be great for the people who go and see black panther and they've been waiting for this for years and they get to walk out and say that was the best marvel movie i've ever seen And that statement will carry so much more weight based on how many other admittedly great Marvel movies there are in the Pantheon. Because I will put Captain America Winter Soldier up against many other non-superhero films as one of the best made and constructed films of the last couple years. I love that film. And... As far as pacing, as far as characterization, as far as tone is concerned, that is still my high watermark. Winter Soldier is still my high watermark. I may find other films more enjoyable to watch, um, but that doesn't discount that I think that Winter Soldier is still their best made film.
0: So my most anticipated movie of 2018 is actually a different Disney movie, Wrinkle in Time.
1: Oh, that's going to be so interesting to watch. I
0: loved... Loved that book as a kid, uh, but I don't have a math brain at all. I don't. That's why I wasn't. She English doesn't major. have any brain. Okay, that's true too. I, I can't. I can't be offended by the truth. So I I can't math. So sometimes reading a lot of it didn't always make a lot of sense. No matter how many times I tried to read it, it took. You're gonna laugh, Jake. It took until Interstellar for me to kind of understand what a tesseract is supposed to look like.
1: I have no comment. You. I know my my feelings on the film interstellar are well documented i know oh lord and but but
0: so so for me some of the concepts that i couldn't really understand as a child it's going to be really amazing to see them played out and the cast is incredible it looks Mbatha-Raw is the mother oprah and mindy kaling and reese witherspoon and uh
1: Chris Pine. It looks amazing. And Zach
0: like, Galifianakis is the happy medium.
1: Like, and, and here's the thing, and this is probably outing outing me as like a bad student of literature, but I never actually got to read that book. I have never sat down and read. Well, the
0: trade-off the is I literature. didn't see it. Or, or, no, so I saw I saw it, but I didn't read the book.
1: And, and there, everybody has gaps. I feel really bad that I haven't had a chance to read this because I've talked to a lot of people that that was like a defining uh, literary touchstone in their childhood development. And so, um, I'm sorry, like, I know that there are going to be people sitting in that theater who are just going to be blown away because of how it resonates with them, because of that pre-established connection. And it looks interesting enough for me that I will probably love it no matter what, but I'm probably not going to have the same connection to it that you are. So it'll be interesting when we sit down to talk about that film, what our perspectives are, because they are going to be very, very different. We'll have to bring a physicist in. How many physicists do we have on speed dial? I know of you. Of course, you do. Um, and on the on the other side of the spectrum, because we've been gushing for a little while, let me talk about something that really greatly disappointed me in the year twenty seventeen. Um, so much so that uh, I still um, find myself kind of just shaking a little bit. Um, and that was I have never been, and this is not hyperbole. I do not believe I have ever been more let down by a wide release film than the dark tower keep in mind i stated earlier in this program how much i love stephen king the pinnacle of my love for stephen king comes from the dark tower it was a cornerstone in my literary development it was eye-opening and it was revelatory to me as a piece of literature and when i heard that they were making a feature film my first thought was i'm cautiously optimistic. Wasn't
0: it going to be a miniseries at one point?
1: There has been This film has been through so many stages of development purgatory that it would be impossible for me to even in an hour explain its full development history. But... They should have just given it to Brian Fuller. Done. You know what? I don't disagree with you. But at one point it was supposed to be a television series. And at one point it was going to be this film that led into... It was going to have companion series that were going to be on television that led into the sequel which, ambitious and admirable, but the film itself was a great disservice to what I consider to be one of the great overarching series of all time. And Idris Elba was perfectly cast. And I believe that is what makes me the most angry, because when you see elements going into something that you're like this could be great this could be the greatest thing since sliced bread and i'm seeing wonderful wonderful things i'm seeing idris elba getting thrown into the cast i'm seeing endorsements from stephen king himself i'm seeing matthew mcconaughey get thrown in the into the cast as a character that is meant to be the embodiment of just extravagance and he can it's like oh we're going to get someone who really knows how to chew the scenery to play the man in black this is going to be perfect and then it's the same thing as whenever I'm at one of those places where uh, they make the pizza in front of you, and you watch the guy in front of you getting their pizza, and then they put pineapple on it. Oh! And that's, yeah, it's that's the exact feeling that oh! I get in the pit of my stomach every. And
0: oh, Jake, I, my mom texted us to say we play nice, and you just play, you just didn't play nice at all.
1: Oh lord, and here's the thing, they could have. In essence made a very minimal budget very deliberate and very almost uh, groundbreaking adaptation of the Dark Tower and it would have it was a guarantee it's almost a license to print money because the whenever the company bought this the rights to get Stephen King's it there was a massive cross section and a massive a massive buy in of Stephen King properties. They got it. They got uh, a, a multitude of his works, and well, for the, a
0: while, wasn't he selling the, the the film rights for like a dollar?
1: It, I I feel like that may have been a thing, and. I'm just going to put this out there like op- like I'm, I'm taking a page out of Oprah and this is and The Secret and I'm just putting it out into the universe. My dream guest for this show is Stephen King. Like, as a writer, there is nobody that I would like to speak to for 20 minutes more than I'd like to st- speak to Stephen King. I
0: feel like you bringing it up has jinxed us.
1: No, like, okay.
0: That's why I'm not bringing up any of our dream guests. <laughs> Brian Fuller.
1: No, I, I'm going to put it out there and somebody's going to hear it and he's going to be like, yeah, I can, I can take 15 minutes away from writing this next thousand page novel to talk to some people. Like, I, I just, I'm putting it out there. I'd love to talk to him. But the thing about The Dark Tower is it was an expanded universe, an interconnected universe before the idea of an interconnected universe was a thing. And so many characters show up from Stephen King's other works in The Dark Tower. Uh, Father Callahan from Salem's Lot shows up. Stephen King himself shows up in one of the later books. The company that owns uh, the rights to the Dark Tower, owns, owns the right to it, owns the right to Salem's Lot, they are all under the same umbrella. Why did they not get together into a think tank and say, this is our cinematic universe? Because that is... A massive undertaking, and it's something that everybody wants to do but can't get right. Case in point, another terrible film from 2017 was The Mummy, the best example of putting the cart before the horse I have ever seen. Like, okay, we're going to cast Russell Crowe, and guess what? He's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and we're going to make us a scary Avengers. But there was no connection to those characters because they didn't build it up. But I guarantee you, if you had made It just the same way they did last year and then you made Salem's Lot and then you made Pet Cemetery or whatever and then you built to the Dark Tower crossover it would have sold like gangbusters. I have not seen word of mouth on a film as positive as I saw in It in a long long time because people were expecting that film to fail hard. The
0: only as I say the only other horror movie that that got better buzz than It was Get Out.
1: And it's because it was unexpected. Get Out was that was a surprise hit a surprise hit to everybody except the people who were paying attention really but we live in a world where people who are making media people who are making pop culture they don't understand the power that they wield and I'm going oh
0: I think they do, but I think they abuse it
1: yeah I one hundred i one hundred percent I one hundred percent agree with you right there um I feel like. They don't understand, or they do understand, and they don't know what to do with it. It's like that. It's like Malcolm said in Jurassic Park. They were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. That's like the Emoji Movie. That that should have been on the poster for the Emoji Movie. Um, and you know, 2017 taught me a lot of things about pop culture that. I didn't even realize it at the time it's one of those things we're now looking back at it i have so many thoughts and so many opinions about um things that i feel like we're moving in the direction where film and tv and movies we are moving into a new era of where the auteur is valuable again if that makes sense um in the in the 70s, whenever we had like the explosion of the cinematic boom with like Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese and the idea of moving away from the template of big studio releases and really putting your mark on your own media, I feel like we're moving towards that yet well, I think again. about it
0: through the democratization of the Internet as well. I mean, for as, as many awful people as the Internet has spawned, it has also given us a ton of exciting new talent, uh, uh Kelly Marie Tran from Star Wars was an, uh, an internet sketch comedian.
1: Well, I mean, if you look at it, one of, uh, and I know if uh, my friend Darnell is listening right now, one of his favorite TV shows is Broad City. Started on YouTube, started on the internet. That's, we, are, we are living in a world where if you want to get your message out to the world, you can. Um, we are the perfect living embodiment of that because if we weren't sitting in this radio studio right now, we would be doing this in my makeshift studio in my home. Uh, and we would be making sure that the things that we wanted to produce, the content that we wanted to produce would be getting out there. Um, and I am one of those people who believes that if you have something to say and you want to put your, uh, your art out into the universe, you need to make sure that it gets done. Don't live with any regret. Um, I am so, so proud of the work that I did last year to ensure that, uh, my book saw publication because. Did you write a book, Jake? Yes, I wrote a book. I've only been talking about it nonstop since like early December, but. No, I, I joke that the the uh, the first Maddie McAllister book was excellent. Okay, so for those of you who don't know, I'm going to take a little bit of time to plug myself because I'm really proud of what I've done. Um, you should be. And I, I started a book series. It was the pitch was what if James Bond was a woman? Was the pitch, and it kind of evolved from there. And the first book, which is called One Fate for Failure, is it's still available. On amazon it's actually discounted on kindle if you want to get it it's only like three bucks so feel free to grab a copy if you have amazon unlimited it's free to borrow so there's no reason not to read it um i basically set out with a mission statement that said i wanted to write something that would speak to people who they're clamoring for a certain type of story and I feel like a lot of people are asking well why is it that we don't have heroes that are more diverse and why is it that we don't have stories that are about more diverse types of characters so I said okay well I want to write a story that deals with traditional tropes and archetypes in the spy genre but I wanted to filter it through an LGBT lens because Maddie is spoiler alert and this doesn't really ruin anything for anybody but Maddie is bisexual and oh my god the whole book is ruined now I know the plot and And she struggles with that. It it is a major point of contention for her character, and it carries through both books. Um, The first book was, I just want to play with these tropes, I want to introduce these characters, and I want to tell a fun story. And then whenever I got around to saying, okay, I'm going to pick up where I left off, and I want to write a sequel, which is the one that I just published, I wanted to go a little bit further with it. I wanted to really have... I wanted to have fun with writing an adventure story, because I feel like whenever I look at what is um, pushed in literature today, even in genre fiction, um, the element of fun is not there for me. Um, it, there's a lot of self-serious media, and what I wanted to show is that a good story, can be it can be well-written, it can be engaging, and it can still be fun. Um, and maybe this is just me coming from a background of like the comic book industry, but looking at like self-serious comics ruined serious adventure stories for me. Uh, it was it took something like Logan to really draw me back in and believe that that could be done well. But my latest book, whenever I sat down to write it, well, I because said
0: Logan wasn't self-serious; it was just serious.
1: No, it was just it maintained its tone. Again, going back to my thesis statement of this is like tone is important. And as far as the tone of My latest book I feel like it's consistent with the first entry in the series I feel like it's a logical extension I'm just not as I'm not as tethered to the idea that everything needs to be as realistic as I used to be and I'm very very proud of the book and I hope that if you're listening out there if you haven't read the book you'll give it a try Um, if you have read the book Thank you so much. You're Uh, welcome. I I have seen... um, I've been looking at the numbers of people who have been picking it up, and you guys have been making me really happy and giving me a good start to 2018. Along with this show, the thing that I am most proud of in my life right now is that book. Um,
0: Well, what can I say except you're welcome.
1: Oh. This microphone is on a stand. It is tethered to the desk. That is the only reason I am not lobbing it as a projectile at your head.
0: It also doesn't belong to you.
1: It also doesn't belong to me, but since when have I cared about property destruction? Anyway, um, we are reaching the end of our time here, so um, is there anything that we want to talk about to wrap everything up here? Anything that we didn't cover?
0: The last season of Halt and Catch Fire was amazing.
1: For those of you- I've been
0: telling you guys this since season one, and nobody believed me until season four.
1: For those of you who have not followed the show extensively, Meredith loves Halt and Catch Fire, more than I love oxygen. She, if given the chance, would completely Buffalo Bill Lee pace in her basement.
0: No, I wouldn't. That's yes, disgusting. You would? No, I don't have a basement.